second part of a three-part series uh, today on Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. We took a look at the fact that he is the prophet that Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18 last week, and today uh, we're looking at him and his role as the great high priest. Again, it's Hebrews 7. We'll use this as a unison reading, beginning to read together at verse 18. Let us read the word of God. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever... He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now I know that baseball season is already over, but if we were to think today, who's the most important person in the ballpark on game day, what would our answer be? Would it be one of those pitchers or outfielders who makes millions of dollars every season? That might be our first thought. But then we might think, well, yes, but that highly paid player might not get to play depending upon what the manager says. And so then the manager becomes the most important person in the ballpark. But is that really true? I believe as we think about it, it's the umpire who really is the important one because it's the umpire who has the authority to make the final decisions that determine the outcome of the game. He can say who's safe and who's out. When it's the the bottom of the ninth inning and the bases are loaded and the game is on the line, the umpire is the one who calls that last pitch a strike which seals the game. He can even call a game 
off for weather or any reason he deems important. It's interesting, you probably don't realize that the word umpire is in your Bible, but it is. And that doesn't mean that they played baseball in ancient Israel. But as you read through the book of Job, you begin to see everything that's been going wrong in his life, all of the losses he's experienced of his family, his his possessions, even his own health, the fact that his friends are are not seeming to support and encourage him. And he so yearns for someone to mediate, to referee between himself and God so that he can find out why all of this is happening. In his ninth chapter, we see these words where he's talking about God. He says, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hands upon us both. Now in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews, we see this gift of a mediator that Job so desired. But the wonderful thing about God's gift of His Son Jesus is that not only does He mediate between God and us, but He also intercedes on our behalf continually as our high priest. And we find that good news in our passage in verses 24 and 25. Because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You see, that means that because of Jesus and his continual work for us, we can go directly into God's presence on our own through him. This is, scripturally speaking, part of what the Reformation principle is all about that we refer to as the priesthood of all believers. We no longer need any priests in God's church because Jesus is the only priest we need, not to mention the fact that we have the call to teach one another the things of God, to support one another, to pray for one another, all of those kinds of wonderful things that happens. So we have direct access to God in Jesus Christ. And this notion of access is one of the important issues to which our author is speaking in our passage, our access to God and how that has drastically changed and for the better in Jesus Christ. Now it's not that the people in the Old Testament times couldn't Uh, somehow come near to God. We know from reading the Psalms that in some ways they felt close to Him, but there's a very real sense in which the whole process of worshiping through the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system that we read about in the Old Testament was designed to keep people a respectful distance from God. Think about what you know of worship in the temple from what you read in the New Testament during Jesus' day and time. We know that the Gentiles could only go so far 
And then if they went any closer, they could be executed. And then the, the Jewish women could only go so far. And then the Jewish men could only go so far. The priests could only go so far. And then just one time a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around him in case something happened to him because no one else dare go into the inner sanctuary. Even with an entire tribe of priests, the Levites, running around Palestine, the Jews were not very close to their God. There was no real sense of access to God. And this is symbolized in a very dramatic way by the curtain that hangs in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, a curtain that we're told in Scripture is ripped from the top to the bottom when Jesus dies on the cross, symbolizing that access is now there through Jesus Christ. In verse 19, we see how our author refers to it. A better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. There's no more curtain, no more separation, direct access. As Larry Crabb puts it in his book, Inside Out, it's this access to God, not the accumulation of religious merit badges that transforms us from the inside out. Our writer wants us to see this new and superior access we have so that we might know God. Not just know about Him, but actually know Him. You know, we can know about God by going to seminary and taking a degree in theology. That will teach us about God, but it doesn't mean that we're going to know God. We can only know God from a spirit-induced devotion, a reverence, a love that enfolds us and draws us near to God Himself. As someone has said, knowing God and having access to Him, these are the true hallmarks of religion. But our problem is Genesis 3 and especially Romans 1, 2, and 3 make clear is that we're far away from God and all that He desires because of the sin that's in our lives. In fact, there's this great gulf of sin between Him and us. And that's why He sends Jesus into the world to bridge that gulf. In fact, the Latin word for priest is pontifex and it means bridge builder. That's what Jesus has done. He's come to build a bridge from God to humanity. And so this is good news that we have in this passage. It's good news any time, but especially it seems to me during the season of Advent because this coming of Jesus into our world provides this better hope of which our author speaks. And it is better because he gives us direct access to God perfectly and permanently. He is, in fact, the perfect priest and far superior priest. And and this is so important to our writer that he's already mentioned it back in the fourth chapter. He talks about it this entire seventh chapter and he'll talk about it in chapters 8 
9 and 10 as well. And after all, he should spend a lot of time on it. Because this amounts to what we would call a paradigm shift in the way that God's people were to worship him. Ancient Israel had worshipped God through the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system ever since the time of Moses and the giving of the law. That's some 1,400 years. You know, some 40 to 50 generations, God's people have been worshipping Him in this way. But now God has sent Jesus into the world and He talks about how God has established Jesus' priesthood by an oath that His priesthood didn't come from the law, that Jesus is Himself a guarantee of this new priesthood, and that His ministry is permanent and not temporary like the Levitical priests because they kept dying off. As one commentator puts it, we have to understand that our author never argues against the Old Testament Scriptures since they are as much an authority to him as the Jewish rabbis of his day and time. Rather, this passage gives us two methods of relating to God. The old method, which was through the Levitical priesthood, that has anticipated the new method, which is Jesus Christ Himself. And we notice in our text that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood in at least three ways. He's superior because He's sinless, He's superior because He's given His sacrifice just once and for all. And He's superior because He's the perfect Son of God. He's the perfect priest. Now you would think I wouldn't even have to spend any time at all on this first point of His superiority. The fact that He's sinless. I mean, that's a given in the Christian faith, isn't it? Don't you believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life? Isn't that what Scripture teaches us? Of course it is. Peter says in the second chapter of his first letter that Jesus committed no sin. That's pretty clear to me. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 5 when he basically states there that that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God, Our same author in Hebrews over in his fourth chapter puts it this way, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Now those verses are pretty clear, aren't they? Scripture makes it clear and teaches that Jesus lived a sinless life. And yet in America today, do you believe and and would you believe that according to George Barna and his surveys, only 62% of Christian people in America believe that Jesus lived a sinless life? I guess my question would be, how can you be a Christian and believe that Jesus is a sinner? A sinful Jesus can't save anyone on the cross. If I die on the cross today, a sinful Jesus can't save you any more than I can. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament is based upon 
unblemished sacrifices, those animals that the Israelites brought to the altar had to be perfect, no defects, no blemishes, no lameness, no blindness, nothing wrong with them. And this is part of the contrast our author is making between Jesus and the Levitical priest. They first had to make sacrifices for themselves, for their own sins, before they could make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. While Jesus only had to make one sacrifice because He lived a perfect life. That sacrifice was for all the sins of the world. The cross is the only time that Jesus ever knew sin. Because as Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him to be sin because all the sins of the world were placed on his shoulders and he took them to the cross. Every sin that had ever been committed, every sin that ever will be committed in the future, Jesus took on himself on the cross. So Jesus is superior because he's sinless. He's also superior because of the fact he has to make just one sacrifice due to his sinlessness and the fact that he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And don't get hung up on Melchizedek when you study the book of Hebrews. I've had a question about that already this week. Uh, Our author just uses him as as an illustration because Melchizedek was not a priest according to the Levitical priesthood, according to the law. He was a priest before the law ever came. And he was superior to Abraham. And he was a king. And so he's simply using him as an illustration, a type, if you will, of the Christ to come. As verse 27 states, that unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You see, his sacrifice is effective today, tomorrow, and all the way into eternity. His sacrifice is effective for those who live before him. All those people, men and women of faith that we read about in the Old Testament as well as those of faith that we don't read. And it's a once and for all sacrifice never to be made again because it pays the complete penalty for sin which God Himself demands. Maybe Paul's words in Romans 3, 23 and following will help here because I think he's talking about part of this. That's where he says, Since all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by His blood. You know, expiation is that atoning action that obliterates sin from God's sight. That expiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. He's talking about the Old Testament there. He's talking about all the people who lived before Christ. God didn't forget those sins. In his forbearance he passed over them. It was to prove, Paul says, at the present time that he himself is righteous. That is, that God is just and that he justifies him who has faith 
in Jesus. I like that passage for lots of reasons, but one of them is that we see past, present, and future all combined together right there in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice whose blood pays for the sins of the world and satisfies every single requirement God has for sins committed against Him by us and everyone who lives. Finally, Jesus is superior because He's the perfect priest, the perfect Son of God. This perfection of Jesus has already been mentioned in Hebrews 5 where we read, Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. I think when we read that in our English Bibles, it's confusing because it makes it sound like Jesus wasn't all that He should have been because He was made Perfect, But remember, in Scripture, most of the time, that word perfect means, has with it the idea of being complete. I think a, a better way for you and I to think about it is, is with the example of graduation. God's purpose and plan of redemption set Jesus on a path of experience that would ultimately include not just teaching and proclamation, not just worship, not just healing people, not just fellowship, but this path would also include suffering and pain. It would include agony and death. And Jesus passed through that school of suffering. His perfection means that He made it all the way to the bitter end of God's will to provide salvation for you and me and for a lost world. Jesus accomplished His mission. He graduated. He's the perfect priest. As verse 28 states it, the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. You see, the infant holy, infant lowly that we sang about just a few moments ago is also the perfect priest the sinless Son of God who sacrificed Himself on the cross once and for all, the one who always lives to make intercession for us today and in the days to come. And you know, if you don't hear anything else in this sermon, and this may have been a boring sermon to you, but sometimes uh, doctrinal sermons can be that way, even when we don't want them to be. The one thing you need to remember is this good news of Jesus always living to make intercession for you and me. Because on our worst day imaginable, in the very worst times of our lives, we can remember that Jesus... Our great high priest is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he is there living not only to rule but to make intercession in his perfect knowledge. He knows all that's going on in our lives and he intercedes with us and for us with the Father. And that's tremendous, tremendous good news. As the choir sang a few moments ago in their offertory anthem, a still, small voice. 
that will one day cry for me. That's what Jesus does for you and me. And that's the good news of the gospel and it's the good news of Advent that God sent His Son Jesus Christ into the world, that He came. And He came as a sinless person and lived a sinless life. And that He was willing to give His life once and for all a sacrifice on the cross for your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world. And that He's the perfect priest as He continues to intercede for us each and every day. It's good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we do thank you for the